The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 85 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I would never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've privileged to a result of my current employment. And I would never knowing disclose any classified information related to any security claims that I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I'll remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So last week's show was really special, and our listeners really loved it. We had 27-year veteran of the United States Navy, former Navy SEAL, and founder of the Geffen Group, Ronald Morris, on the show with us last week. And he came on to talk about the importance of behavioral risk and coaching in cybersecurity. We also talked about assessing human capital risk and why organizations should invest in protecting their reputation and interest when it comes to personnel selection. So Mars is a real-life American hero. Right? It was a real honor to have him on the show and to speak with him. I, I talked to him about all kinds of things. We talked about people problems he's seen during his special operations career and how the screening process is essential to choosing the right personnel to handle sensitive data in your organization, uh, which is something that we talk about all the time on this show. But as you can imagine, you know, he had some very cool stories about some of the experiences he's had, some of the jobs he's had in his life were obviously very, very dangerous, very dangerous situations. And if the human capital selection process in the military failed in any way, it really could have turned into a deadly situation. And he has been in that situation time and time again. So he's very knowledgeable about behavior and selection risk. He's very obviously familiar with it from his experiences in the military. And he provided us insight into how the assessment and selection of special operations leaders translates to the private sector, because that's what's important here. That's what we're, we're talking about. Uh, from, for the most part in the cybersecurity industry, and also how that assessment process is used to identify workforce strengths and potential vulnerabilities as well. That can be used as a predictive tool for performance, uh, which is important in the industry that we're all talking about here. So it was a great show, especially if you're a senior person who hires people on a regular basis, or if you're an HR professional or a recruiter, especially if you're a recruiter, you're going to find this show very, very interesting. So if you missed last week's show, Check it out when you get a chance on your favorite playback medium. That's former Navy SEAL and founder of the Geffen Group, Ronald Mars. On last week's episode, that's episode number 84 of Task Force 7 Radio.
Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new website, www.tf7radio.com, and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you'll find all the TF7 radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is probably one of the most impressive uh, list of, of guests that you'll see in any type of cybersecurity podcast. I'm very proud of it. I think it's awesome. Uh, and you can even write comments on different news articles and topics that we're talking about, which is a lot of fun. And it really, it really connects you to the whole TF7 family. We're on 11 different playback mediums now. And you go to the subscribe button, you can also see all the playback mediums and take you to your favorite one. You can subscribe right there if that's what you want to do. And you can get all the updates right from the TF7 radio page. You get TF7 extras, the Encore episodes, and any type of Task Force 7 news and events. So it's, it's really cool. Check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365. That's the beauty of internet radio anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So a great show for you this week. Awesome. I'm really excited for uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Michael Klipstein on the show with us tonight. Dr. Michael Klipstein has been involved with cyberspace operations since 2010. He's got a lot of experience here. And this time, he has assisted in defining priority intelligence requirements for U.S. Cybercom while coordinating for the organization's continuity of government network systems. Following this experience, Michael worked for two years in tailored access operations, that's TAO, as part of the National Security Agency. That's right, he worked in TAO at NSA. We're going to have him right here on the show tonight, so it's going to be a really interesting conversation. While he was in TAO, he coordinated with military services, national laboratories, industry, and academia for research, development, and implementation of capabilities to use against the nation's hard targets. Following this, Michael led the Army's National Mission Team, the offensive cyber team tasked to conduct operations to protect the critical infrastructure and key resources of the nation and to answer intelligence requirements as assigned by the President of the United States. Following his success here, he was leveraged by the Army to create and train two national-level cyber protection teams charged with protecting the Department of Defense's networks from nation-state actors. Leaving this job in 2014, Michael attended the Naval Postgraduate School in California for the next three years. In this time, he attained his PhD with his dissertation on quantifying risk for offensive cyber operations, which was incorporated into a DARPA project. Currently, Dr. Klipstein is assigned as a senior research scientist and the chief of outreach at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. How cool is that? And he's also an adjunct professor for cyberspace classes at Columbia. His research at ACI includes cyberspace deterrence, information operations in areas between peace and conflict, incorporating cyberspace operations into special operations, and creating partnerships between the greater cyber enterprise, industry, and academia. I'm really excited to have him on the show tonight. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome Dr. Michael Klipstein to the show. Mike, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George, for having me. I'm greatly honored to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Hey, so I want to ask you the question. I mean, how did cybersecurity become such a big problem? I mean, whether it's from a financial perspective or from a security perspective or an economic perspective, I mean, this is just a, it's a really big problem. How did it become such a large emphasis on our society? 
So if you start looking at the White House con the White House Council of Economic Advisors report that came out last year. They're estimating that somewhere between 57 and $109 billion worth of theft happened in the U.S. economy last year alone. I mean, so for those of us working in cyber operations, there's no surprise in that. Our adversaries have realized that cyberspace is an asymmetric space that fight a militarily uh, advantageous uh, entity. And so for them, it's much easier to operate in cyberspace to gain intellectual property, to to stymie the U.S. efforts, et cetera. Um, the biggest thing is they do it without attribution. In the U.S., we've realized the cyber operations are more of a, more than just a way to collect intelligence, that we can use these also for augmented kinetic wartime and potentially use as their own line of effort. So just think about this one for a moment. What if a nation, nation could be made to capitulate to an adversary without any troops, tanks, or planes leaving their home station? That'd be a really powerful message. In some places, that's possible because so much of what that nation holds dear is tied to the Internet. So do you think that's possible right now? Other countries can actually hold some countries hostage just by you know, a, a cyber attack and basically make them capitulate? We started seeing some of this stuff happening in 2008 when you start looking at Georgia and when you start looking at Estonia. Right, right. A, lot of these bulk, a lot of these nations have a lot of their critical infrastructure to include things for their, their personnel, whether it's voting, whether it's for uh, maintaining your identity, driver's license, et cetera, all connected and done online. You don't go into a physical place to do it. It's all done online. So if you can, if you can handle that kind of an attack, more power to you. But even in the United States, imagine this. What if somebody crashed Wall Street? What would that, what would that do to the American public? Yeah, it would have a huge effect, right? And then you got to wonder where we draw the line. And I'm sure that uh, that would cross the line. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure it would. But I think, you know, attribution continues to be very, very difficult. And I want to ask you, you know, why, why do you think that's, that's so uh, um, for some of our uh, folks out there that aren't professional, no audience out there that aren't professionals in the business? And for those who are in the business, you know, is it still important? I still think it's important. I just hold a, I heard a, a very senior cybersecurity professional say just a few weeks ago that it wasn't important again. And I kind of beg to differ about that. What are your thoughts? So attribution is hard because it is so easy to masquerade online. Just think about this one for a moment. How many email addresses do you have, George? Uh, four. Okay. So each one of those is a different persona online without even trying. So now imagine if you actually were trying to hide or masquerade online. There's a lot of technology and techniques out there made for preserving anonymity. So these same technology and techniques can be used to hide an attacker's tracks. So every time I use a different machine, every time I use a different persona, every time I use a different location, all of these are different ways of masquerading online. So if I hide and pop out into the real world as the mom and pop little store in Iowa, they're the ones that are going to get blamed 98% of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. And I think, you know, attribution, as hard as it might be, is still very important. And I still think that, you know, in a lot of times, if we're persistent in our methods, our adversaries do make mistakes. You know, they do make mistakes. And you can, you can achieve attribution. And, uh, you know, but you have to wait for them to make the mistake and put yourself in an opportunity to take advantage of it. Now, the U.S. has taken a stance of, defend forward. You know, this statement that we use and we, we, we steer away from the offensive operations, you know, offensive tactics, you know, at least labeling anything offensive and use this defend forward statement. And they stating that it'll be more aggressive in cyberspace for deterring our adversary. So how's this changed the environment? 
So when they say that they're going to defend forward in that strategy, they start signaling for deterrence purposes. So this phrase tells adversaries that the U.S. isn't going to wait for them to come into U.S. spaces anymore, that we're going to try to defeat them in gray space or potentially even in the adversary spaces themselves. The big thing is this tells our adversaries that we as the United States are going to proactively live in their networks and hold things that they that they take for for granted or for that they hold dearly, put it at risk. And so if, if the U.S. can also live in these networks and take that next generation of malware that a country is going to use, we as the United States can potentially have a mitigation for it in place or use this for attribution to go back to our last question. I mean, if, if I can conclusively show that this was that country because we collected this intelligence, then there's no arguing of that. So I think this is this tactic is, is better than just us sitting on our hands and, and doing nothing. And and you know it's interesting the way we define it and go about it. Um, how has information operations become front and center in cyberspace? So once upon a time, cyber operations it was then called CNO, was considered to be a pillar of information operations. The paradigm shifted once cyber became a little bit more well-known and money got attached to it. So now that we're starting to we're starting to go back to that old paradigm because we realized that there's a huge overlap between cyberspace operations, information operations, electronic warfare, that one, they're mutually supportive of one another, and two, that they are actually delivery mechanisms for one another. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And in fact, you know, the effects of information operations online can affect everybody, right? Not just governments or big Fortune 500 companies, but just you know, consumers as well too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It can be highly effective. So I also teach at Columbia University, and so one of my lessons looks at this. So information operations can be used to divide a society or to cause infighting. I mean, we saw this in the 2016 presidential election. So when you look at the top 20 Facebook pages managed by the IRA, which is the Russian troll farm, those 20 pages generated over 38 million likes, over 20 million shares, and over 3 million comments. The top page alone received over 6 million likes. The Russians played both sides of the special interest groups for multiple issues such as African-American justice, immigration, white supremacy, and others. It's quite easy to start dividing a nation or a populace when you start playing both sides of the fence like that. Well, it seems to me like just obviously, this is, we talk about this a lot on the show. I think it was a very organized attack. We also talk about election security a lot and I don't think these types of operations are going to stop regardless of what anybody says but I mean are the Russians the only one doing this how about our how about our friends over in China or North Korea uh, Iraq Iran excuse me Iran how, you know how about those three uh, adversaries no, the Russians aren't the only one to do it, but they are very prolific, and they are probably among the best. I mean, you did mention China, but there's also the criminal groups. One of my favorite criminal examples is a scam to elicit money. I talk about this at Columbia, and I use this as a teaching point at Columbia. So Facebook's largest Black Lives Matter page was, in fact, run by a middle-aged dude in Australia. He acquired over $100,000 in donations and had over twice the number of followers as a legitimate site. Think about that for a moment. So if he actually wanted to divide a society, he had a stronger position to do it than the actual Black Lives Matter uh, website did in, in the movement. He could have ignited a firestorm. So criminal, criminals are in a position to start doing this also for their own purposes. So there's been you know, some recent tensions between the United States and Iran in the news. You know, how does cybersecurity uh, play into, in, into that? Uh, situation. I mean, do you think that there'll be any type of cyber conflict 
if tensions flare between these two nations. So going back to what I said earlier, cyber is a very, cyberspace is a very asymmetric space. So the, the Iranians realized this a long time ago. So in 2011, 2012, when they were DDoSing the banks in the financial industry, that was in a way trying to get the Americans to come to the table over nuclear arms deals. They've also realized when they got, when they allegedly broke into the Navy Marine Corps intranet, it was a way to siphon off intelligence of what the United States was doing militarily, especially in cyberspace. And so in order to prepare for what we were, what we could do, they were stealing that information and trying to identify who the different people working in cyberspace are. They've realized that this is a very asymmetric tool that we will play by different rules than they will. And they're using that to their advantage every day, day in, day out. All right, folks, we've got to transition to a commercial break here, but there's lots more to talk about. So stick with us. We'll be back in a few moments. Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to take a pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, Senior Research Scientist and the Chief of Outreach at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point, Dr. Michael Klipstein. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, senior research scientist, and the Chief of Outreach at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point, Dr. Michael Klipstein. So, Mike, in the first segment, we were talking about information operations, and you mentioned the fact that it's very easy to do. And I think that's, you know, to some people out there when they hear that, I mean, really, I mean, they think to themselves, is it really that easy to affect and disrupt the elections of another country and turn two two, uh, political parties against each other so bad that it just really tears the country apart. I mean, why is it so easy and why is it so effective? And so people naturally look for information that confirms to their... It's known as confirmation bias, excuse me. So part of the problem is people get the majority of their news these days from social media platforms. And what does that mean? It means that there's no vetting of the news anymore like what we did years ago. There's no two sources of verification for each news uh, uh, excuse me, news item. And so anybody can be a journalist or a news source online these days. You could, I could, anybody could. So what does this mean? So as a viewer 
or a consumer of news, if you're an extreme conservative, you're going to go to the news sources that tailor to your belief systems. If you are extreme liberal, you're going to go to those beliefs, those news sources that tailor to those belief systems. Whatever your form of crazy is personally, there's a news source out there for you these days, and you're going to go to it and nowhere else. So is it the fact that our news sources are so biased and they're not as balanced as they, they used to be? I mean, whether, you know, I guess everybody has an opinion, and I'm sure they're going to say, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, let's just take CNN and Fox News, maybe people would argue two ends of the extreme, you know. So, I mean, is it, that, is, is it because of that? I think it's part of it. I think also the news cycle is sped up so dramatically as everyone wants to be the first one to get out in front of the news cycle itself and be the one breaking the news. I think that notoriety comes with a certain sacrifice, and that's the due diligence of news. And in some ways, it's tr- the news has become a profitable industry where between advertisers and uh, network market share, it it's driving an extreme polarization between the news sources. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, it, it does. I mean, so let's dig a little bit deeper in this. What do you mean by the news sources driving this extreme polarization? Because it's really, it's facilitating our adversaries' goals, isn't it, at this point? Absolutely. And so, how do I say this? So if you, if you are extreme conservative or extreme liberal, you are going to go towards those news sources. And so if if you are going to go to those news sources per se, there's a, there's a lot of, excuse me, there's a lot of psychology research out there that shows that it's far easier to walk back a comment once you've made an extreme comment than to start walking one forward to more extremism. And so great case in point is there's been a lot of research done with this for the Trump election. If you look at David, or excuse me, P.W. Singer's book called Like Wars, he talks about this, throws out an extremely controversial view. A lot of people start picking it up that are hardcore Trump uh, supporters. And then as he walks it back, two things happen. So one, he picks up more people as supporters. And two, the world sees him as trying to negotiate and and become conciliatory on some of these things. And so this has happened not just with this election cycle, but it's happened multiple times in business and in other things. It, it's, it's cognitive psychology 101. So it's being applied to information operations, except for it's being done on a mass scale. So when you think about these, these information operations, are they more than just military operations? Are they government personnel, uh, obviously, uh, and, uh, heading up a lot of these um, operations but is it more than that I mean is there is, is there criminal organizations involved are they using other people outsourcing other talent I I think there are I think that I so Iran's been known to use proxies for a long time as has as has Russia excuse me and so if you look think back to some of the things that have happened especially the troll farms out of the 2016 elections one of the things that came out was on social media there was a big campaign saying that there was a there was a pedophile sex dungeon in the bottom of a pizza parlor and basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Now, you may think that's crazy. I definitely thought it was crazy, but, and most of the world thought it was crazy, but there was one dude who drove 350 miles with a, with a car full of rifles and pistols who walked into the pizza parlor with those and actually fired off a couple shots. He believed it. He thought it was true, and he thought he was doing the right thing, but there was no kids, no sex dungeon, not even a basement in the building. So obviously he did believe it, and it's, it is effective. So it, even though this is an isolated case, 
it could be used as, as, as an example, correct? It, it is not isolated necessarily. I mean, look at ISIS. So ISIS, ISIS created recruiting videos in over 20 different languages. And so to put that into perspective, ISIS put recruiting videos in American Sign Language. That's how targeted they became. So if you're a, if you're a white middle-aged teenager in, in suburbia, they had a message for you. If you're an African-American, inner-city, lower-income youth, they had a message for you. They tailored the message to their audience instead of the one-size-fits-all message that a lot of people throw out there. They are highly effective with what they do, and so a lot of our different adversaries are becoming more effective by doing that micro-targeting also. So, I mean, if this is so effective in civilian elections, this can be also effective in military operations as well, no? Absolutely. I mean, can they be used for military objectives? Absolutely. Um, but they, they are better for strategic goals. If you go back to what I said earlier about ISIS, if a nation can attain their, their objectives or their end states without firing a shot, isn't that a win also? This worked for many years. So Valery Gerasimov, the general of the, is a Russian general and, and secretary of the, of the general staff, he wrote about this in 2013. He wrote about this saying that non-military efforts will work far better than military efforts for swaying a population using information operations. He, he's even said that in, two, in 2017, he even said that this has actually become more dangerous than what he had originally thought it was going to be. So why does the United States care about this, about this now? I mean, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the sense of urgency around it? So... Typically, the U.S. has had a narrative of we're here to bring freedom and democracy, and it's always been through a U.S. lens. Well, not everyone wants the U.S. version of freedom and democracy. And so when I was in Iraq, we spoke about that quite a bit, but there's portions of the world that don't want it, like I said. So on a larger scale, we have, we have used information operations as effectively as we could have when we're dealing with either partner nations or adversaries. We need to tailor our messages to fit the situation at hand. So when we work with another partner nation or a nation we're trying to reconstruct, we have a message that resonates with them to their value system. When we speak to our adversaries, we have a message that resonates to them and their value system and it keeps them from doing things that they want to do. I kind of feel like the United States would be probably the best at this, but I don't really see this in the news. I don't see it in the news that the United States is doing this to, to other countries. But can, can you elaborate a little bit, you know, because of all your experience in this space, about achieving objectives without force? And I think that's, that's very interesting because, I, I, from what I understand, the United States really doesn't have a policy yet about what crosses the alliance in, in a cyber attack against the United States with that, where that would, you know, uh, trigger a, a, a kinetic attack, right? So, so go ahead. Very true. So Russia has done this very publicly, weaving a narrative of ethnic Russians being in the Crimea, wanting to return to Russia. And so they've dealt that they've they've woven that that narrative throughout everything they have done in order to build consensus or at least a believable story somewhat on the world stage. Now, is it believable to everyone? No, but it provides a narrative that they are all standing behind at that particular point. Now, going back to what you said about the U.S. hasn't declared a, for lack of a better term, a red line in the sand for cyberspace operations. I mean, there's multiple reasons for that. So how much money has to be stolen before it's an act of war? I don't know that. If you know that, I'd be happy to listen to it. 
But the bottom line is that with each administration, that value calculus changes a little bit. Now, additionally, here's the other thing. If we draw a line in the sand, it gives our adversaries a place to walk up to and not cross. And at that point, they know that we haven't, they haven't triggered that, that response. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, how many banks were, were DDoSed? One of the largest financial institutions in the United States were attacked. And, you know, some would argue we did nothing. Absolutely. Uh, right. But so that's an interesting paradigm right there also because speaking from my hat wearing the, from the Department of Defense, that's not our lane. That belongs to Department of Homeland Security, Department of Treasury, and all these others. When you start looking at Presidential Policy Directive 21 of who owns what critical sectors, a lot of people look to the Department of Defense for why aren't you doing something about this? It wasn't ours to do. We were quietly sitting on the sidelines waiting for somebody to ask us to do something in a lot of cases. Right. Well, how else does Russia look to achieve their objectives without force? I mean, this is not something new to other nations, but maybe it's a new tactic that Russia has taken. So they have taken a very long-term approach to this. Um, they've also taken a cue from some other nations, specifically Iran and China. So they are yeah, separating themselves. China, right off the bat, you know, on top of my head, I think China has a very long-term strategy on this. Very true. But so Russia's taken one of their exa- Chinese examples to heart. So they're building what we're, what's being referred to as RUNET. So in 2020, Russia looks to separate itself from the greater internet writ large. So it's going to be completely controlled. Russia itself will become an intranet. So if you are a Russian citizen outside of Russia, you have the ability of logging into RUNET. If you are within Russia, it'll be the default internet for you. So what does that mean? So content that is approved by the Russian government will come into you. Content that is not won't come in, just like it's in China and just like it's in Iran and North Korea. Um, the big difference, though, is this. So when you type a website in, in most countries, the default language for searching the Internet or navigating the Internet is English. Russia is looking to change that to Cyrillic. So they're going to have to change all how, the, how the DNS servers work. And they're in addition to creating their own DNS servers, and they're changing how the web browser is going to have to work to handle nothing but Cyrillic. So it's, they're taking a little bit different tack to it. I mean, can this really happen? Can the Russians really separate themselves from the Internet in a very effective way? And, but, and, and what also would be the main objective to doing that? So the main objective is so they can control the information flow coming in and out. They also look at it as a security apparatus also to prevent the well, Americans. Well, hold on a second. So, so the main purpose is really content control, right? I would say there's two equal goals. I think it's equal, okay. Security so, would be the second? Yes, to prevent the Americans from breaking in. So if they can break themselves away from and wall themselves off from the greater internet, as the Chinese have done, they feel like they, it is a security measure to prevent the Americans from getting into their systems. And so how feasible is it? Yeah, how feasible. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how the United States really wants to get in. I mean, they're so, not going to be able to get in there, really? I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's... So it's probably not a discussion for this show. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can have that somewhere else. But, but the fact of the matter is, they've already started the test. They started the test back in November. They've, this has been on the books for some time now. And they've been putting all the pieces in place. And back in November, they ran their first test of trying to what it's going to take to separate themselves off. They're still having some technical glitches. But they're getting there. And I think by, by the end of 2020, they will have put all the pieces in place to do it if they wish. 
So that's pretty interesting. How much of a threat is that to the United States? Is it a threat to the United States? Is that a defensive tactic? You know, will, will my traffic actually go through Russia at some point? So that's the biggest problem right there. So in 2011, I believe it was off the top of my head, China redirected almost a third of the world's internet traffic through China through what they claimed to be a mistake in routing. So Russia is clearly has clearly stated in the past that traffic that traverses through Russia's sovereign spaces, in this case, RUNET, will be open for inspection and anything else the Russians wish to do. So if they wish to inspect it, take a copy of it, black hole it, whatever, they're claiming they're going to have the sovereign right to do that. So any traffic that then traverses through their spaces or through their servers, whether it's meant for them or not, they, they're claiming to have the rights to do, to do all those things. So it could impact the United States. You don't know where your traffic's going to go. When I was in my PhD program in California, my mom lived in Maryland. And so the way I used to explain it to people is when I sent her an email, in theory, depending on what's happening at that time in the world, it, that email may go the long way around just because it's an easier traffic versus going straight across the United States. So you're saying that China rerouted 15% of the world's internet traffic through China? No, I'm saying they routed a third. A third. Okay. A third. 33%. 33%, even more. Okay, so 33% of the world's internet traffic through China, and they did that for how long? It happened for, I believe it was 18 minutes off the top of my head, but it's, they're claiming it was a mistake, and it very well may be, but it also woke the world up to that this is a possibility that we can siphon all this traffic through one place and do with it what we wish. So if we wish to delay it, black hole it, inspect it, copy it, whatever the case may be, it is possible. How are they able to do that? So the Internet's a very dynamic place, and so it takes these server, these routers will send traffic how they are told to send it. So if they're told that going to China is a faster, easier, more efficient route, they'll do it. So, you know, we talked about in some of these other episodes, it's not like I got enough to worry about, that, you know, about the Russians turning off the lights in, in, in your house, you know, but now we got to worry about the, the Chinese or, or the Russians reading my email. <laughs> Potentially, it depends on what service you use. If you're using Google, I mean, they, they claim to encrypt everything from end to end. If you're not using, if, if, if you're using another one, Potentially. So this is part of the problem that we have these days is, and it's part of this controversy about encryption, whether NSA should have encryption keys or not. Should the FBI be able to break into phones or decrypt traffic or not? It's a balance between security and privacy. And so where you fall on that spectrum, you're obviously going to either waver in, in favor of security or favor of privacy. And so just each person has their own individual take on that. Does that make sense? Sure it does. I mean, if you're a security advocate and you think that the, the, the United States government should have keys to uh, read encrypted communications and things of that sort, do you think your opinion changes when you think about the Chinese government reading your communications instead of the, the United States government? I mean, some of these people out there are probably saying, like, who cares about me? I'm not even important. Like, I don't have anything important to say. I mean, what do you think the reaction is going to be? So I've had this conversation with some of my family members, actually. And so my family members may not have anything important that the Chinese will care about per se, but what if my family member is then masqueraded by the Chinese to perpetrate fraud, crimes, whatever the case may be, or their device is then used to break into other places or to create a DDoS? 
just because that little device that's in your pocket makes telephone calls, it's still a computer that sends out the same amount of data as what your laptop or a server can. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. I guess so. The takeaway is everybody should care. Yes. <laughs> that's right. All right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, senior research scientist and the chief of outreach at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point, Dr. Michael Klipstein. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem superconnector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at SOC Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snork detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. 
and are mapped to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from SOC Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.socprime.com with promo code RADIO2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code RADIO2019. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the senior research scientist and the chief of outreach at the Army Cyber Institute at West Point, Dr. Michael Cliffstein. So, Mike, uh, moving into the third segment here. I mean, it sounded, you know, pretty dismal, uh, the situation that we were talking about in terms of how easy it is to influence elections, how easy it is to disrupt sort of the norms in society by using these cyber attacks. Are nations creating these norms now online that didn't exist before? I honestly think they are. So there's multiple different aspects of this. So China and Russia have often asked the U.S. to define what a red line in cyberspace would look like. We talked about this a little bit the last segment. And so we as the United States are very hesitant to to draw that line in the sand uh, for the reasons we talked about before. China and Russia are also looking for us to give very explicit definitions for, for some of our terms for cyberspace operations, attack, defense, et cetera. Because in the world, in, in the world this global discussions, they wish to use our language against us in some way, shape, or form also. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so, and so when you look at these online norms, I mean, one of the big ones these days is 5G. So when a new product gets put in front of the IEEE for, uh, for uh, excuse me, I, Internet, Internet Engineering Task Force, they call out the uh, request for uh, comments. And so when this happens, usually a couple of representatives from Cisco or whatever governments will show up. Well, China is known to send 50, 70, even 100 people to these things all for 5G. They're trying to get their their products to become the the global standard for 5G. So everyone has to conform to their protocols and their standards. So that's another way that they're trying to shape norms online. And you still have all these doubters out there that come up with all these, you know, alternate arguments on why that that's that's not the case. I mean, what do you think about when you read stuff like that? I think they're looking at it. I I think they're looking at it from a very myopic point of view. And so from the 5G perspective alone. So let's look at it this way. So let's ignore about it. I think they're just stupid. But go ahead. (laughs) So it's bigger than that, though. And so let's ignore the argument for backdoors in in the encryption or in the hardware itself. Let's just ignore that. So if Huawei produces the networks, Chinese laws state that Huawei can pull the traffic and make a copy of it for network optimization purposes to for network performance. So now here's the thing about Chinese law. Any data that's collected is warehoused in China. So at that point, anything that traverses a Huawei network would is 
theoretically could be housed in China, all that information. So they could do whatever they wish at that point. They could do analytics. They could try to decrypt it, whatever the case may be. So here's a great example of that. Huawei and China are building a high-speed fiber backbone that's going across land masses towards Europe. It's going to cover 40% of the world's population, and only Huawei devices are going to be able to connect to it. Their big selling point is it's not going under the ocean so the Americans can't tap it. And so any traffic that traverses across that high-speed fiber link could be then copied and then warehoused in China for whatever they wish to do with it later on. And it seems that some countries, you know, whether they're in the five eyes or not, allies of the United States are just continuing to give us a hard time about this. So they just don't want to listen. I mean, I don't understand it. I can't, I can't, is this just a, a, a complete economic decision that they're making right now? I mean, they, they don't understand the risk that, that it's occurring. I mean, what do you think is happening here? So I think a lot of it is driven by economics. Um, do I think they understand the risk? In some ways I do, but I don't think there's a lot of alternatives out there for them. So the next two biggest off the top of my head are for 5G producers are Ericsson and Nokia. Neither one of them can scale to the way to the point to where Huawei is right now. So at a certain point, it becomes either you take Huawei or you have nothing. Now, Huawei is also discounted because of uh, subsidies by the Chinese government. So that's important. So when you look at the African Union, so there's been a lot of work done in the African Union by China and in particular Huawei. So Huawei has put a lot of telecommunications infrastructure in the African Union. And so China has approached this with a very different tact. So their messaging is we are cheaper than Cisco or any other company out there. We were once upon a time a colony of you also. Now, because you are a former colony, we're going to treat you to a special deal. We understand that the United States and the rest of Western Europe has fleeced you over the years. In fact, there's been studies done about how the African Union has taken, I believe it was $50 billion in loans out, repaid $45 billion worth of loans, and still has $22 billion worth of interest outstanding. And so China has said, we will give you $20 billion as a gift. We will build you a new African Union headquarters free of charge. We will give you a 30% discount on Huawei infrastructure because once upon a time, we were taken advantage of by the Westerners also. That's the message that we have to overcome. And it's not just about economics. Again, it goes back to value systems and how you resonate against them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, and it's scary too. It's scary because I think a lot of people are buying into this and it, it seems to be a struggle. Um, it, apparently it is a struggle. It's on the news all the time. You know, how, how is the U.S. shaping online norms? I mean, what are we doing about it? So the U.S. has recognized this and we're starting to build a coalition of nations under the, uh, the National Cyber Strategy. It's Pillar 4, building a... Uh, American, advanced American influence is the pillar, excuse me. And under that pillar are multiple sections to achieve the goals for creating norms in cyberspace, uh, in particular promoting a multi-stakeholder model of internet governance and building international cyber capacity. That's one of the efforts I'm working on right now with U.S. Southcom in South America. I just came back from Chile to help build theater security cooperation in cyberspace between the U.S. and Chile. How, how viable it is. Uh, of a of an idea is to create a an internet governance that's international, so and accepted by you know many different nations. So when I say governance, I'm not talking about somebody who's standing over top of all of this and adjudicating what's right or wrong, but it's us as nations coming together in a like-minded place 
to say we believe this to be right, wrong, ethical, unethical, whatever the case may be, and setting and it's trying to counter some of these other norms that are happening online, especially the narratives that are spreading online. And so when we say that this is right or wrong, as a block of nations or societies, it has a greater voice than just the United States saying it. Together we are stronger. Is the United States strong on its own? Yes, but think about how much stronger that message would be if most of the nations of the world stood next to the United States and said, Russia, this is wrong. So when we talk about the international cyber capacity here and this governance model that, you, that you're speaking of, what do we really mean by we, when we say international cyber capacity? How do we define that? So we look at this under multiple different, uh, multiple different arching arches. So we look at threat information sharing, training, and collective defenses as, a, as an effort. Again, the internet connects us all, and so in some ways, we are all vulnerable together. So if I can get into one network, I may be able to keep going into adjacent networks and work my way to the things I actually care about. So like I told you, I was just in Chile two weeks ago. So we started looking at technical aspects, processes, incident reports, and policy for the nation. And so we started seeing where the U.S. could potentially assist them in some of these efforts, whether it's providing training for their analysts, uh, looking at where the policy could be shaped. Good case in point, the Ministry of Defense is responsible for civilian critical infrastructure sectors that don't belong to them. They're not given the resources, the personnel, or the, uh, the coordinating authority through other ministries to get to those critical infrastructure sectors. So this is part of the stuff we're looking at is how can we help these nations, not just Chile, but across the globe, have a more effective and robust uh, use of the resources that they currently have and be able to share information to and from the United States. So is Southcom the only command doing this? So right now, Southcom is the test bed for this stuff. Uh, they are the latest strategy came out two weeks ago. It's the first rewrite for theater security cooperation to involve cyber since 2013. So the big overarching policy came out two weeks ago. This summer, the doctrine will come out about how to do it. Southcom is basically the lead geographic combatant command at this point from the joint staff's perspective simply because they're, and this is not a condescending term, but their mission set and their area of operation is the least complex when you start looking and comparing them versus Asia, Central, CENTCOM's area of operations in Europe. South America, for the problems that it's recently having in Venezuela, is the most stable versus the other combatant commands. So can the U.S. trade information with foreign nations about threats in cyberspace? We were just talking about this the other day, and what should be traded and who should be traded with and how it should be traded. I mean, is it on a, an ad hoc basis or is each individual incident, you know, uh, carry its own weight or should there be actual strict guidelines? So we do this already. So DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has a system for sharing with between DHS and the U.S. civilian sector, DHS and partner nations. So they use what they call uh, TLP, Traffic Light Protocol, to determine how information is disseminated and who is eligible to receive it. So it goes red, amber, green. So green, anybody can receive it, anybody can see it, anybody can do whatever they wish with it. There's nothing harmful in it. And usually that's stuff that talks about vulnerabilities that are made public. Amber, it restricts it a little bit, and so maybe we'll take the name of a specific company off of it or a specific in individual off of it to protect that company or that individual. 
red. Red is a little bit more restrictive. However, all three of these are on classified data. So red is the most restrictive. And so for that, maybe it'll be stay within a certain sector. Let's just say the banking sector as an example. So the banking sector can better prepare itself and protect itself in the time of a crisis. Again, unclassified data. However, we're just limiting how it gets disseminated outside of the Department of Homeland Security. So we do this now with reports, but there's also through US CERT and DHS, machine algorithms that are sent out, signatures for lack of a better term, machine to machine languages, using structured languages called sticks and taxi, that talks about threats and sends them out. It's a, it's a standardized international language that describes what an attack is, a breach, et cetera. And so that stuff can be used and sent out globally now. And so this is the information we're talking about when we're talking about sharing threat information with international partners. You know, so is the United States going to continue to share information with allies who use 5G networks run by Huawei? So, <laughs> so that's an interesting conversation that is happening in D.C. right now, and I would love to see how that comes out. Um, there has been some grumblings about it. I don't know what the official position is on that, but I'm actually waiting to see what's going to happen with that. Um, Chile uses a lot of 5G, or excuse me, not, not 5G, but uh, Huawei products already, and they're starting to question the value of them and their systems and they're sort meaning the cost of them and not just because of dollars or cents but what are they losing in the process of the, having them in their system they're they're starting to consider potentially taking them out but they don't know what the ramifications of that are going to be yet as far as time time cost and and uh and effects of their systems does that make sense yeah it does but i just don't understand the argument that someone could make to share information with an ally that uses a Huawei network, and we won't use it ourselves because of security concerns. But we're going to send it to them, and it's going to go over the same network that we refuse to use uh, because of national so security reasons. We, so we as the United States use Huawei networks also. So if you look at uh, online, there's a uh, – and I can send you the link later on if you wish. So back in March, I believe it was, CNN did a report about how there's small telecommunications providers in the Midwest of the United States. And so when I say small, they have less than 100,000 subscribers. And so for them, it's cheaper to buy, it was cheaper to buy Huawei devices. Now, is that important? Yes, but it gets a little bit more yeah, dangerous. So a lot of those systems are close to military installations. In fact, on the, on the article online, they showed where there was a Huawei telecommunications uh, radio less than three miles, or excuse me, less than a mile away from a uh, missile silo base. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I would say that's a problem. I mean, I, please send me that article. I'd like to read it because I haven't sure. seen that yet. And so I would imagine that uh, that's a very interesting conversation to have. I, I don't care that it's only 100,000 subscribers. I mean, I, I think that's an issue. I think the bigger problem is it's less than a mile away from a missile silo yeah, base. Of course, of course. And God knows what else is over there. Uh, what other kind of critical infrastructure is there? Um, you know, how long will it take to set up this international information center that you're talking about? How long is this going to take? So I'm working on this effort right now, and it's comprised of U.S. Cyber Command, the Joint Staff, and the European Defense Agency. So for us, we're looking at 18 to 24 months before we can get this up and running globally. Um, for what Southcom is doing, that'll probably, depending on the entire, depending on the effort, it could happen within the next 12 months, uh, although Southcom is looking at a five-year plan holistically. That's to include hardware, software, uh, national policy, everything 
that goes from front to back on theater security cooperation. So I am working two separate efforts, uh, one for the international sharing of information, one, but also with Southcom also. And so that international one will be 18 to 24 months. And so once we hand it back to Cyber Command and the European Defense Agency, it's up to them to figure out how long it's going to take to actually implement it. Now, being that it's U.S. Cyber Command and the European Defense Agency, it is open globally. They are the two champions of this project. So if Japan wishes to come and participate, they may. So it's not just between the U.S. and the EDA. I want to make sure that's perfectly clear up front. So last question, where, where do we go from here? What's, what's the way forward, in your opinion, the best way to, with all these security threats that we're looking at, with all these very complicated and sophisticated issues about, you know, Chinese infrastructure and along with our allies and even, even uh, apparently even in, in some uh, telecoms here in the United States, what are the next steps? Where do we go? So this is my own, my own personal opinion here. The U.S. needs to work more as a whole society effort across government and industry. Um, so the private sector sees far more than what the government sees as far as threats and attacks and uh, vulnerabilities. As a society, we need to work more hand-in-hand -hand with one another. When I say that as government and, and the private sector. You got to remember, so in the private sector, they hold the vast majority of holdings within power generation, telecommunications, banking, and other big sectors to keep America moving forward. And so we as government, specifically the DOD, one, don't have the numbers to protect all that stuff. Two, don't have the authorities to protect all that stuff. And that's fine. There's other government agencies for that. But DHS is shorthanded also. All of us are shorthanded. There's not enough of us to go around, period, said, done. And so to protect America and America's interests, we need a whole society effort. That's my own personal opinion. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to come in and speak with us. I know you're really busy. You're traveling all over the world, fighting a good fight. You got a fascinating background. And I got to tell you, this is very interesting conversation. Um, and we love and appreciate what you do. Thanks so much. Well, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be part of your show today. Thank you so much. All right, folks, it's time to go once again. But before we go, I remind our listeners, to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show, get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 